Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I have prepared a most deliciously ghoulish entertainment for this occasion. Horrifying Tales of Wonder. Ghost Stories. Weird Tales of the Macabre. The producers of this radio program would be most gratified by your generous support, which can be arranged at patreon.com forward slash tales of wonderpod. And as per usual, we wish to make clear that we assume no legal responsibility whatsoever for any case of death by fright. 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 But I'm getting ahead of myself. I am, of course, your humble host, Beltravius Mountcastle. And on this ethereal evening, I'd like to introduce you to a friend of mine. Now, as it happens, this particular friend serves as assistant to a most extraordinary doctor. You see, the doctor isn't quite who he appears to... Well, I'd better let him tell you what happened in... The Occurrence of the Heir Apparent by Teal James Glenn. Lord Croydon is most definitely dead, Dr. Augustus Argent announced as he knelt beside our host's body. Murdered. The three party guests clustered in the doorway of the study gasped as one at the statement. The Lord's daughter, Jean, her husband, Miles Pertwee, and Lord Croydon's assistant, Adam Kinter, all pressed towards the corpse for a closer look. How can that be? I called from the window from which I had stuck my head for breath to escape the foul air that filled the room. The chill wind of the night refreshed my lungs, a sharp contrast to the miasma of the closed space. The room was locked till I kicked the door in. Indeed, after the Lord was heard to cry for his daughter Jean, a cry of terror that we all heard abruptly cut off, the servants had pounded on the door in frustration before summoning the party guests to the scene of the murder. I shouldered into the room to find it thick with gas from the extinguished sconces and had rushed straight to the window to unlock and open it. Now I rejoined Dr. Argent at the centre of the room, where he surveyed the murder scene through eyes afire with wit and intellect. The doctor was my friend and employer, but even if he were not, he would still have commanded my attention as he did for all the individuals now gathered in the Lord's study. My mentor stood over six feet, his silver hair hung to his shoulders, a trait that, along with his moustache and goatee, caused the doctor's visage to resemble that of an American frontiersman, though his dress, speech, and manners reflected his membership in the upper echelons of English aristocracy. There can be no doubt of the manner of the Lord's death, Jack, Dr. Argent announced, in the calm tone I had come to know so well. He has been strangled. The doctor pointed, and by the light that streamed in from the full moon, I could see the true state of the dead man. The mustachioed Lord's face was horribly distorted in the most terrible fear, his tongue protruding and swollen, his eyes bulging. The most telling signs that this was a murder, however, were the marks of bruising around his neck, which clearly resembled the imprints of fingers. Father! 
cried the Lord's daughter, Jean, as she pushed her way toward the body before turning away in horror. Her lovely blonde hair was dishevelled with fright, and her husband Miles was forced to place a restraining arm on her shoulder to stop her trembling. Dr. Argent rose and spoke solemnly. There is nothing more to be done here, Jack. The room is sufficiently aerated. Let us now relight the lamps, then close the door to preserve the evidence for the fellows from Scotland Yard. The doctor said this with a sly wink in my direction, as I alone knew his position as Minister Without Portfolio for Occult Affairs granted him full latitude to act in the matter of the Lord's murder, and our guests did not know this as of yet. I did as my mentor requested, leaving the window of the second-floor room opened, and stepped out into the hall with him. The other party guests, as well as the servants, filed out into the corridor behind us, glancing at one another uncomfortably. I suggest we all retire downstairs to the drawing-room, the doctor announced to the group with a sweeping motion of cat-like grace. He designated two servants to stand guard at the study's door, then turned and whispered to me, Jack, you know my methods and you possess a keen eye. Once we have vacated this room, perform a thorough examination of all its particulars, then report back to me. I waited till the doctor had shepherded the others downstairs, then re-entered the scene of the Lord's death, pulling the shattered door closed behind me. The study was in every way a typical sanctum for a man of Lord Croydon's position and interests, both an eminent archaeologist and a peer in the House of Lords. The room was panelled in dark oak, the bookshelves lining the walls heavy with numerous leather-bound volumes covering all periods of antiquity. Everywhere were displayed souvenirs of the Lord's many excavations throughout the Middle East and North Africa, Berber necklaces, Bedouin robes, a kinjal, a scarab necklace, an exquisite Persian silk painting depicting a scene from the Thousand and One Nights, all casually arrayed among the mechanical devices the Lord was famous for developing and employing. Experimental helmet lamps created for work in deep caves, a small model of an electrically powered pump to drain water from sunken digs, and an assemblage of miniatures of mechanical steam shovels and other earth-moving devices. In but a single glance from his desk, the Lord could survey the results of his many journeys and accomplishments around the globe and smile in satisfaction. But he would never do so again, of course, for what remained of him now lay on the floor before his desk, illuminated by a pale shaft of moonlight. Lord Croydon had been nearly seventy years of age, though from all reports in excellent health, having just returned from an expedition to Inner Arabia. His white hair and full beard had granted him a distinguished, even handsome appearance in life. But his features now were so distorted by the manner of his death that I could scarcely bear to look at them. In his right hand he held a unique jewelled brooch, unlike any I had ever seen. At last I tore my eyes from the gruesome sight to make a detailed survey of the room, as Dr. Argent had instructed. I went to the window again and re-examined the latch, which had been firmly fastened when I opened it, 
It bore no visible marks of tampering. Secure, I said aloud, as if to reassure myself. I discovered no sign of a string or of other means by which the window could have been refastened from the outside if the killer had exited via that route. I opened the window and leaned out to examine the ground below for evidence, but the moonlight made it clear that the wall bore no tell-tale marks of a ladder, nor were any footprints to be seen. Next, I craned my neck to look up at the eaves, but the ivy was undisturbed and the overhand clearly offered no purchase. With that avenue of escape eliminated, I proceeded to examine the room's interior in detail. I tapped and sounded out every inch of the walls and floors for any hidden exits, trapdoors or escape stairs. I found none, save for the small wall safe hidden behind a false set of books on a top shelf. The safe was untouched and unopened as far as I could determine. My last act in the examination was to minutely study the door's now broken lock. It had been intact before my forced entrance, and showed no sign of having been picked, the key still being present on its interior side. In short, I left the room every bit as baffled as when I entered it. Downstairs, Dr. Argent had gathered all the guests and servants, save the two on guard by the study, down here in the drawing-room. The large, window-lined room had been turned into an exhibit hall to showcase the artefacts from Lord Croydon's dig on the Arabian Peninsula. Tables were strewn with lamps, daggers, plaques, urns, and many other treasures the great archaeologist had uncovered, each polished and labelled for examination in preparation for donation to the Victoria and Miles Museum. The three party guests sat in nervous silence surrounded by trinkets of long-dead caliphs. "'Ladies and gentlemen,' said Dr. Argent as I entered, "'well, lady and gentlemen, "'I beg your patience as we await the authorities who will investigate fully.' He said this with another sly glance in my direction, but I kept the secret of his ministerial powers in silence as before. "'Why would anyone do this to father?' sobbed Jean, the lord's daughter. "'Who would want to kill him? He'd just gone up to his study.' "'Calm now, my darling,' her husband Miles said, patting her arm. He poured her a glass of sherry, and glared up at Dr. Argent with his eyes gleamed like shards of yellow diamonds. "'Now look here, doctor,' he began. Jean interrupted him with a cry. "'What could be done, Dr. Argent?' She buried her face in her hands, shaking her head. Something must be done. What can be done, will be done, my silver-haired mentor declared. First we must establish the whereabouts of all parties at the time of the murder. But we were all in this room, cried Adam Kinter. We will determine precisely where all parties were in due time. Dr. Argent said with a sly grin. First we must gather all the facts. Now, if each of you would recount your whereabouts when you heard the yell for you all to rush to the Lord's study. Each guest and servant in turn recounted their exact position, 
when the butler, Collins, had proclaimed that he heard the Lord cry out his daughter's name. Each guest and servant was vouched for by at least one other person. Adam Kinter had been observed the entire time at the far end of the drawing-room, bent over an oil lamp in one of the exhibit cases, polishing it and muttering to himself in words no one could hear. Jean, the Lord's daughter, had been among a group of women, chatting excitedly and looking for her husband who could not be located. "'I'd stepped outside for a cigar,' the burly Miles Pertwee said curtly. "'Jean doesn't like the smell.' "'I don't like the smell of that alibi,' Adam Kinter rejoined. "'What was this fellow really doing?' he gestured at Pertwee. "'Kinter,' Pertwee replied, "'ever since Jean chose me over you, you've—' "'Sir!' Dr. Argent stomped his foot with a finality that made all eyes turn toward him. You will only upset the Lady Jean further and complicate our difficulties. Your whereabouts matter as you are the only one unaccounted for at the time of the Lord's death. I don't have to explain myself to any of you, Pertwee objected, least of all to you. Actually, sirrah, you do. I spoke up not willing to brook such impertinence toward my employer. Dr. Argent is empowered by the Crown to— I caught a look from the doctor, somewhere between amusement and caution, which caused me to pause. Adam Kinter took that opportunity to interject. Ask Mr. Pertwee who had the most to gain from his lordship's death. Adam, Jean cried, how could you? Are you still so angry? that my father discharged you for your unwanted attentions towards me? He let you come to his unveiling because you helped on the excavation, but— Miles stole you, Kinter protested. That ruffian wormed his way into the Arabian dig and your father's confidence, then tricked you into marrying him so he would become an heir. You bounder. Miles Pertwee stepped forward, his fists raised, only to be restrained by his wife. Enough, Dr. Argent declared, in a tone that brooked no further discussion. He held us all transfixed for a long moment, his keen eyes taking in every detail of the tableau. Then, with a nod of his head, he announced, I know what happened to his lordship and want only for one final proof to apprehend the villain. A collective gasp erupted from all present, including myself. What happened to my father? Jean asked in a childlike voice. Who? I'm afraid, Mrs. Pertwee, the doctor said, that I am not prepared to voice my postulations just yet. He turned to me. First, Jack, we must return to the site of the murder to conduct an experiment. I am sure we will then be able to tell these good people who the killer is. He then addressed the room. You must all stay within sight of one another while Jack and I are absent. When we return, we shall proclaim the name of the murderer to you all. I obediently followed the silver-haired doctor up to the study. He dismissed the servants, then closed the door and braced it shut with a heavy chair. Pale moonlight cast its eerie glow over the scene of the murder. 
the ancient artifacts and modern machinery, forming a strange backdrop for the horror of the Lord's mortal remains. I turned up the gas lamps and asked, What now, Doctor? My employer chuckled softly and said, We wait for the murderers to strike us down. For him to what? I squeaked. The doctor seemed to ignore my question, and bent to examine one of the devices on a wooden stand near the wall. It was a tangle of tubes and hose, topped by a clear spherical vessel resembling a hermetically sealed goldfish. Lord Croydon was an inventive genius, Dr. Argent murmured. According to his notes, this is a prototype of a pump that would extract seepage from digs. The liquid runs into this glass reservoir here, he gestured with his long dexterous fingers, where it may be visually examined before being filtered. Sediment of various sizes is then pumped out through this aperture. He twisted the valve. You will note that the aperture is now closed, so the vessel cannot empty. He turned a dial, and the electrical batteries connected to the device began to hum. Oh, well and good, I said, confused by this brief lecture. But what has this to do with the killer you spoke of? You shall see, Jack, the doctor said, as soon as he arrives to assassinate us. Before I could respond, the sconces along the wall began to flicker. One of the gas lamps flared up brightly as all the others went out. The flame on the single jet turned from gold to blue. Smoke poured from the sconce, but instead of rising toward the ceiling, it sank to the floor, resembling nothing so much as a miniature version of the pillar of smoke and fire that Moses followed. Ah, Jack, Dr. Argent said in reaction to my surprise. It is as I thought. Be prepared to turn that switch at my signal. He pointed to the siphoning device, then picked up a length of tubing connected to it and turned to face the blue cloud. The smoky column resolved itself into a shape of a tall, strongly built man, with distinctly blue-tinted skin and sharp facial features, high cheekbones, a hooked nose and a pair of ferociously gleaming eyes. This new arrival stood naked, very much a perfect male figure in every way, save that he had cloven hooves in place of feet. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Argent said. Walaikum assalam, the blue fellow replied in a deep voice, folding his arms. His figure wavered in the pale moonlight as if he were composed of smoke rather than any solid substance. You know why I am here, Effendi, the figure asked. Yes, Dr. Argent replied. Your master has dispatched you to end my life, and that of my associate, because he is afraid I have discovered him. Just so, answered the smoke-shrouded figure. I bear no malice, but must do as my master wishes. As we all must, my mentor said with a touch of sadness. Then, suddenly, he turned to me, shouting, now, Jack! I threw the switch. The vacuum machine rumbled to life, filling the room with a whining sound. 
Dr. Argent grasped the tube and pointed the tube at the blue fellow, who cried out as the suction drew him into the device, distorting his form and compressing it into the transparent container. In an instant our nemesis had become nothing more than a cloud of blue smoke swirling in a glass reservoir. Dr. Argent reached over and switched the machine off, closing its valves and trapping the blue smoke inside. "'You may reignite the lamps, Jack,' Dr. Argent said. "'We are quite safe now. This fellow's master is a coward and will do nothing, even when he discovers his assassin has failed.' I did as the doctor asked. When I turned back to him, he was in a crouch, his focused, gleaming eyes minutely scrutinizing the blue mist that filled the globe. The features of the blue-faced man were still clearly visible in the smoke, albeit distorted. The apparition's misty face gazed back at my mentor with hooded eyes, evidently resigned to its fate. "'Almost done, Jack,' Dr. Argent said. All that is left is to arrest the one who sent this fellow to do us mischief. But, Doctor, I stammered, what have I just witnessed? Who or what is this creature? The Quran says that he and his kind are made of smokeless and scorching fire, the Doctor replied, but are also physical in nature, being able to interact in a tactile manner with people and objects, and likewise to be acted upon, neither good nor evil, but servant to any who command them. W what is he? I asked. He is what Lord Croydon recognized him to be, Jack. You see, the butler heard incorrectly the words cried out by the Lord in his last desperate moments. He was not calling out his daughter's name, Jean. Instead, he was naming the instrument of his death. A djinn. A djinn, I murmured, gazing at the clouded blue face in the glass reservoir. But who could have summoned him? Dr. Argent replied with a cold smile, the only person who knew that the enchanted lamp needed to be rubbed, who appeared to be mumbling to himself when, in fact, he was giving orders to the djinn within that lamp. Kinter! The very same, Dr. Argent said. The spurned lover who got his revenge on his employer and did his best to cast the shadow of guilt on his rival in hopes of regaining his lost lady love. Let us hurry downstairs now and make the arrest. What about him? I pointed to the glass globe where the blue gin was eyeing us with a resigned expression. Ah, well, the doctor said, he will be here when we return with his lamp to counteract his last order and give him new ones. A few wishes, perhaps. I fancy we could use a new coach, I mused. My employer smiled. Or perhaps, he said, we should hold this fellow in reserve for the day when we truly need his services. And with that, he led the way down the stairs to arrest the jilted lover who had thought to use a djinn as a murder weapon. And so ends our tale for this evening. And remember, to support this program, 
and gain access to bonus Chamber of Fright episodes, please do pay us a visit at patreon.com forward slash Tales of Wonder Pod.